morning, Wellspring family. He is risen. Let's try that again. He is risen. It's great to see your faces. It's great to be with you, whether you are in the room or online. When I was a kid, growing up in the 80s and 90s, there were no smartphones. And so if you heard the lyrics of a song and you wanted to learn them or sing along, there was no way to just find them at your fingertips. You had to hope that there were some liner notes or maybe you would just listen to the song over and over again, like me. Um, Even in the late 90s, when they started having those search engines, they were pretty slow. And if you remember those days of the early internet, um, when it would use a lot of memory, it would take forever. Oh, and you also had to be sitting at the one computer in your house. Do you remember that? You had to be sitting at this place right there. So internet was there and there only. That was it, the coveted seat. Oh, and you also had to wait for that dial-up connection um, sometimes with the unforgettable sound of that. And you also had to make sure that another family member wasn't using the phone too. Sometimes that, that was an issue. Because song lyrics were not found on screens back then. And so whenever I would get a new Uh, cassette tape or eventually CDs, the first thing I would check was to see if the lyrics were included. Does anyone ever do that? And the best would be if it folded out into a whole bunch of panels because you knew if it's that long, it's going to have words. I mean, the pictures are great too, but man, I just wanted the words of the songs. And it was like opening an an Easter egg or something. If if there was nothing to eat inside, you'd be like, oh man, no, no lyrics. But if there were lyrics... It was as if a wonderful piece of candy was in there. And nowadays, thanks to technology, we have lyric videos and search bars you can type in, and we even have apps you can sing along with that show you the lyrics live as the song is playing. Those are some of my favorite. Um, And it's actually a really good time to be a music lover, where you can find all of these genres and songs and if it's a famous song of any type you can find it pretty quickly. Now not all songs have lyrics, Um, not all genres of music are the kind that you can look up, but there is something that every great song has, whether there are words or not, whether it's one genre with more instruments or less, whether it's newer or older, and that one thing that every good song has is emotion. Emotion. Or as Aerosmith might say, sweet emotion from the 70s. Or as Mariah Carey might say from the 90s, uh, you've got me feeling emotions higher than the heavens above. I'm glad I didn't try to sing that. Music doesn't work without emotions. Stories don't work without emotions. You might say that uh, sermons don't work without emotions. Believe me, I know. They just don't. Um, I've, I've done some of those. And every message, every song needs to have more than just the content of the words. There needs to be emotion. And the good news of Easter Sunday that has traveled all the way from ancient Jerusalem to modern Honolulu would not have made it this far 
without some emotion. Some emotion of joy that declares that he is risen. Without the emotion that says, wow, we are going to celebrate this Good Friday and this Easter Sunday every single year across traditions, across streams of our faith. And when we encounter the Bible and we see that it's not only the story of God, but it's also the song of God, it's the sermon of God, we discover that our emotions matter to God and deep, deeply so. And if you like a good plot twist or two, uh, you're here on a good day because you will love the story of Joseph, whose life could be described as an emotional roller coaster. And we've been going through the life of Joseph in this Lenten series, and our series is called Meant It for Good. And I just want to give a quick recap in case you weren't here. Uh, Last week, Pastor Rebecca was in Genesis chapter 42, and that's the point in the story where our protagonist, Joseph, has risen to power from the depths of slavery and imprisonment to become second in command of all Egypt. And because of this widespread ecological crisis that's going on, there's famine, there's drought. Joseph is in this position of distributing the food. The only place in that known world at the time that had a surplus to sell. And his brothers from Canaan, where he was betrayed decades earlier, come And they encounter Joseph in this new role. Joseph knows it's them, but they don't know it's him. And now that his older brothers are at his mercy, instead of the other way around, Joseph uses his position of power to test them. And he actually accuses them repeatedly of being spies, even though Joseph knows that they're not spies. He's testing them. And there's a point in the story where he says, this is how I'll know if you are honest. Leave one of your brothers with me, kind of like a security deposit. You can take the food that you came for, go back to your homeland of Canaan. But if you ever want to come back, you have to bring this youngest brother of ours, but they don't know that he's a brother, that that Joseph is a brother. But you have to bring our youngest brother, Benjamin, back. And so that sermon is called The Confrontation, if you want to listen to that from last week. Um, It's on our website, wellspring.org, under the worship tab. There's a sermon archive there. But today we're going to be a couple chapters later in the story in Genesis chapter 45. Now, a few things have happened between Genesis 42 and 45. So here's the Cliff Notes version of 43 and 44. Um, The security deposit, Simeon, has been held captive while the nine brothers go back to Canaan. And they have good news and bad news for their father, Jacob. Good news, we got the food. We're not going to starve. Bad news, we had to leave Simeon there. And even worse, if we ever want to get more food when this supply runs out, we are going to have to bring our youngest brother, Benjamin, who their father, Jacob, will not release. He is the favorite son. He is the one who is there as... Jacob's attempt to fill the Joseph-shaped hole in his heart ever since his son was believed to be dead, even though he was actually sold into slavery and very much alive. 
The brothers don't know what happened to Joseph. Jacob believes that Joseph is dead, and there's no way he's going to release Benjamin after all that has happened. And so, sure enough, the supply of food eventually runs out. And so Jacob has a dilemma on his hands and reluctantly agrees to send Benjamin with the brothers. But he only does that after the oldest brother, Judah, puts himself on the line, offering a personal guarantee that he will uh, guarantee his brother's safety. So they get back to Egypt, and Simeon is released, as promised. So now there are 11 brothers together. And they are sent to Joseph's private home for a mysterious dinner where they bow down before him, fulfilling one of the childhood dreams that Joseph had of the sun uh, and moon and 11 stars bowing before him. And then what happens is very strange. At the dinner, Joseph seats everybody in the exact birth order. And even though they don't recognize him yet, they're starting to sense that something fishy is going on. Because after the dinner, Joseph sends them back with supplies of food to their land, but he's not done testing them yet. And so what Joseph does is he tells his staff to hide or plant a silver cup in Benjamin's sack so that he can accuse Benjamin of theft and see how his brothers respond to that sense of potential betrayal that Joseph experienced so long ago. And so when Benjamin is accused of theft, the brothers step in and plead his case that he's innocent. And Judah, again, gives his second long speech of the story. The first one was when he pleaded with his dad to let Benjamin go with him. Now he gives an even longer speech to Joseph saying, take me instead, I will switch places with my youngest brother so that he can go back because my dad will die of despair if he's not returned home. And so what Judah asks Joseph at the end of this section is, how can I go back to my father without Benjamin? I couldn't bear to see how badly my father would be hurt. And that's where we pick up the story today. And by the way, this is an emotional story. There is quite a bit of weeping. And earlier in the story, we've already seen Joseph weep twice. The first time is when he's overhearing his brothers talking amongst themselves and they don't know that he's listening and they're expressing their shame and regret for what they did so many years ago. And the text says that Joseph had to step away from them and weep. And then the second time, on the second trip, when Benjamin is brought and Joseph sees him all grown up for the first time since childbirth and he gives him a blessing, the text says that Joseph's feelings for his brother were so strong that he was about to weep, so he rushed into another room and wept there. And now we come to weeping scene number three, where it's slowly becoming less private and more public because now Joseph finds himself listening to his oldest brother pleading, reminding him of what happened so long ago. And not only is his oldest brother there, but his youngest brother is also there, who they just 
reconnected and reunited. And then there's a third thread there too as they're talking about their dad who would be heartbroken. And then Joseph knows that he too would be heartbroken if he never got to see his dad again. He may not be old enough to travel. Who knows? And so they're talking about all of these family issues and it's just too much. It's too much for Joseph. And so in your bulletin, you can see where the story picks up in chapter 45. Beginning in verse 1, it says, Joseph could no longer control himself in front of all his attendants, so he declared, everyone leave now, so no one stayed with him when he revealed his identity to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians and Pharaoh's household heard him. Everyone knows about it now. It's not private anymore. And Joseph reveals himself to his brothers saying, hey, I am Joseph. Is my father really still alive? And this is the first time his brothers are getting this. So they're stunned. They don't know what to say. And they can't respond, the text says, because they are just terrified, understandably. This guy who's been in power and running the show of their food supply is the brother who they betrayed so long ago. What kind of revenge will he exact upon them? And yet, Joseph realizes that they're stunned, and he takes a breath and switches gears. What I love about this is he tells them again, but the second time he does it more for their sake than for his. The first time was, I'm carrying all this, I'm just going to spit it out. And by the way, I really care about dad, how's he doing? Second time, he notices what's happening. He's reading the room and he sees that they're just in shock. And so notice what Joseph does in verse 4. He brings them closer. He decides to create a less threatening environment and says, come close to me. And they move closer. He says, I'm your brother Joseph, the one you sold to Egypt. Now don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me here. Actually, God was part of this. God sent me before you to save lives. And so now the brothers are listening. And they're starting to see that Joseph wants to have a relationship. As you go down to verse 9, skipping down, Joseph continues by inviting the whole extended family to move from Canaan to Egypt where there's enough space, enough supplies, enough sustenance for all of them. And he says, oops, hurry, go back to your father. Tell him that this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me master of all Egypt. So come on down, don't delay. You can live in this land of Goshen so you'll be near me your children, your grandchildren, your flocks, your herds, and everyone with you. Multi-generational, Ohana living. And Joseph continues, I'm going to support you there so that you, your household, everyone with you will not starve since the, fa the famine still has five years to go. You and my brother Benjamin have seen with your own eyes that I'm speaking to you, so tell my father about my power in Egypt and everything you've seen. But hurry <laughs> and bring dad back. 
Notice how Joseph is saying essentially to his brothers who have been carrying this guilt and shame, yes, it happened, but don't beat yourself up about it because we can work through this together. There are a lot of emotions to work through in this family drama, but we can face it together. He tells them that he's ready to be transparent. It's a time for timely transparency. And that's number one in your notes, is that hope spreads through timely transparency, not 24-7 transparency, where you just have to reveal everything you're feeling, thinking to everyone all the time. But at the right time, there's something about being transparent when you're ready that spreads hope. Joseph had a lot to work through before he was ready to even reveal that. He had so many meetings with the brothers, right, where he chose to hold that back because he wanted to see were they still the ones who left him for dead just for 20 pieces of silver. But when he's ready, he reveals himself with timely transparency. And that's our invitation as well. What is our time to be transparent with our emotions? Back in 2010, November 20th, our second son, Vincent, passed away from cancer. He was 18 months old at the time. And it's been 12 years, almost 13. And that first year of grief was one in which I had to mark each month that went by. And I usually did that with a blog post or something public to kind of remind the world what had happened. And it was my, my grief journal. It was my way of describing what I was feeling as I struggled to process what had happened. And as those first few months went by, one, two, three, four months, five months, six months, the gap grew between this young 18-month-old boy, Vincent, we had lost, and then the older hypothetical Vincent who was alive and cancer-free as if he had never been sick. And that gap began to grow, and that was part of the grief. And by the time it was one year in, things started to feel different. Not better, but different. Um, there was a point at which I just did not want to blog or type or say any more about Vincent. I had told the stories, and it just felt like there was nothing more that I wanted to say. When we reached that one-year mark, I said, okay, I think my strategy needs to change. Now, that strategy was good for the time being, but as you go on in grief, you need to change gears sometimes. And at that point, the monthly blog posts were more emotionally draining than they were cathartic. And sometimes I would be up late at night for hours, just trying to find words, feeling like I had to say something because it's the 20th of the month. But as we approached the point when Vincent's absence began to eclipse the length of his 18-month life, I started journaling less, even though time was steamrolling forward, taking us with it. And on the two-year anniversary in 2012, I took this picture where Vincent is buried, and the grass was starting to sprout where there had once been dirt. That particular year was especially complicated because the reality of 
it was that our third son, Andre, was due any moment. And we didn't want him to be born on that day. Thankfully, he was not. Andre took his time and arrived a few days later. But he kind of looked like Vincent. And I'll show you some, some photos of that. So on the left is Vincent, on the right is Andre. Here's another one of them. Vincent and Andre, the two brothers who never met yet. On the third anniversary, I wrote this. Each anniversary feels like an ominous semester deadline when your list of unfinished assignments can no longer be ignored. Grief will let you procrastinate, but only for so long, and my tears are due today. I still had more tears. It had been a year. And it felt like a ship had sunk, and this shipwreck was getting further and further out of reach. Back when it first sank, it was like snorkeling. You didn't have to go very deep to find it, to touch that place of loss. And as the months and years went by, it became more like deep sea diving. If I wanted to be there and figure out how I felt and touch the connection with Vincent, however that happens, it was a lot of work to swim that deep. Because there's something about the passage of time that has this heartless way of creating distance. We were so close, and yet the time continues to separate us. And I'm like, how old is Vincent now? <laughs> is he the age when he died or the age he would be now? And that gap kept growing. And even though Vincent, to this day, he's never far from my thoughts, um, there is that passage of time. A shadow. The Bible is full of shadows like this. In fact, we just came through one on Good Friday. And when Jesus was betrayed on a Thursday night, and he died on that Good Friday, there was a shadow that came over the world. And the world would never be the same. From that point on, there would only be two periods of human history, before the cross and after the cross. And when Joseph was betrayed for 20 pieces of silver, and sold into slavery, there was a shadow that came over his family, and they would never be the same. There was only before Joseph was sold into slavery, and after, before the betrayal, and after. And yet, this is an Easter message, right? Okay. And yet, the story was not over. God was not done working. In fact, God's mission to bring hope from despair, to bring life from death, was just beginning. God was just getting started. And if the first way that we're talking about hope spreading is through timely transparency with our, with our emotions, the second way that hope spreads is through telling the truth, but with a tender heart. And so number two in your notes, hope spreads through tender-hearted truthfulness. I wanted to keep the tea, the, the tea theme going there. Tender-hearted truthfulness. Try to say that quickly. About the things that have come between us. So timely transparency and tender-hearted 
truthfulness about the space, the time, the relationship, whatever the conflict is, whatever is causing that gap between us. And it is with tender-hearted truthfulness that Joseph reveals himself to his brothers in Genesis 45. But this is more than just sharing information. This is more than just, let me recap the last few decades of my life. When Joseph reveals his identity, this is a game changer. This is a game changing move that creates a whole new reality for their family. There is a new sense of, oh my goodness, you're not dead, but you're alive. And you're not mad at us. You want a relationship. And you're not getting revenge. You want to offer forgiveness. It's a game changer. Now, notice the way that this changes the game in verse uh, 14 and 15. Joseph throws his arms around his brother Benjamin's neck. He's weeping, and Benjamin weeps on his shoulder. Joseph is no longer weeping alone. It's happening. The emotion is coming out. And there's more. Joseph kisses all his brothers and weeps. He embraces all of his brothers. And finally, after that, the brothers are able to talk to him, the brothers who betrayed him, the brothers who had been carrying this secret all that time. They could finally build that relationship. In fact, it doesn't even stop there because the text tells us that Pharaoh and Pharaoh's household was impacted because when they heard the message... They were happy. They were pleased, the text says. It was good news for them that Joseph and his brothers were in a better place. You know it's a big deal when when Pharaoh is celebrating. And so this new normal, this new reality has begun. And the future has changed. The family's future has changed. And when Joseph comes out and says, I'm your brother, it's like this doorway has opened, this this doorway to hope. And when Benjamin weeps after being embraced and the brothers are embraced, this is weeping number four for Joseph, and it's in the middle of a set of seven, so it's actually a really important one, right in the middle, number four, but he's not weeping alone. There's so much weeping and embracing in this text. And, And that's really what strikes me about this story of Joseph. In the midst of all the plot twists, in the midst of all the ups and downs of that emotional roller coaster. Um, what's so striking is just the sheer quantity of emotion to me. Um, and it reminds me of another revelation when someone was alive and no longer dead. Imagine the women at the tomb, what they must have felt as they experienced that game-changing news with shock, amazement, surprise, fear, so many other things. What does this even mean? That he's not here. The tomb is empty. He's alive? What? What is happening? It changes the game. And so the surprising reveal of Joseph in which he says, I'm your brother, that reveal is only matched and surpassed by the revelation that Jesus makes. The revelation of he is no longer here. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. That's right. 
Jesus isn't dead anymore. It's a game changer. Jesus is alive. And Jesus is the the greater Joseph, the truer Joseph, who despite being betrayed and left for dead, he keeps working through the pain and extends himself at great cost so that we all might be able to experience true family togetherness. That's who Jesus is. He will extend himself at great risk. He will reveal with timely transparency and tender-hearted truth-telling whatever it takes so that there can be an abundant, grace-filled future for us, a whole new reality in which he is not dead. He is alive. And there is hope again across generations, across diverse experiences. Isn't that what Easter is? Isn't Easter the ultimate hope catalyst, the ultimate story of spreading hope. It spreads from this small group of women to a larger group, a medium-sized group, a circle of friends. It grows into a multi-ethnic movement. It grows into a countercultural community. And eventually, we get to be part of that because the community grows and grows to the ends of the earth as people declare that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And so the final one in your notes, and you know it's going to have two T's in it, hope spreads by taking tangible steps, taking tangible steps that embrace new opportunities made possible by God's resurrection power. Because of this opportunity, there is a new, because of this new normal, there's, a, there's opportunities, right? If Jesus is alive, then that means we can live too. If he's no longer dead, then we don't just have a Good Friday. We have an Easter Sunday. We get to do the bells. We get to do the food. We get to do the colors. We get to do the flowers. All of this is possible because of the new reality that we can celebrate year after year until we see him face to face and we reconcile with those who have gone before us. And that is the hope that we see for Jacob's father, the last character in this story, Jacob. In verse 26 to 28, it says this. The brothers, they announced to him, Joseph is still alive. He's actually ruler of all the land of Egypt. Jacob's heart nearly failed. He didn't believe them understandably. But when they told him everything that Joseph had said and when, they, when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, Jacob was able to recover. He goes from not wanting to touch a thing or lift a finger or go anywhere to, yes, I can make this journey. I'm an old man, but for Joseph, I will go. Oh, and for food too. I will go. <laughs> and so Jacob recovers. And then Israel, which is also Jacob's name, he says, this is too much. My son Joseph is still alive. Let me go see him before I die. And so just like his son Joseph, just like the other 11, Jacob is also overwhelmed with the emotion of that game-changing news. And he wants to be part of what God is doing. And so for us, what is that tangible step, right? For each of us, there is something that is different because of the resurrection. Whether it's the way we talk about Jesus, 
whether it's the stories we tell our kids about what happens to our bodies, whether it's the victory that we have that we sang about earlier, that Christ is not only the one who died, but the one who rose, the one who is king, the one who is returning, the one who wants to bring the family back together. It's, it's a game changer. It's why we're here. It's why the church exists. And so I hope that there is a tangible step somewhere in there. And I'll let you work that out. There's discussion questions for your small group. There's reflection questions that you can do on your own this week. And we've still got a lot more Easter to do. So I'm just going to wrap us up in prayer, knowing and celebrating that Jesus is alive and Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Lord, we give you thanks for your story, for your song. We give you thanks for being the truer and greater Joseph, the one who died and rose again, who truly died and truly lives with us now, Lord. We give you thanks for gathering your family back together, for making it possible for us to experience the abundance of what you have for us, more than we thought was possible, more than just the small quantity that we thought we could bring with us. There is a whole land to share and a whole family to get to know. Help us, Jesus, to take those tangible steps, to be transparent at the right time, and to be truth-tellers with tender hearts. It's in your name we pray. Amen.